Good morning, church, and welcome to our gathering today as we continue in our series in the letter of 1 John. And today we find ourselves at the end of this first section. We are in week four, and John is going to bring together some foundational truths for us that would hopefully give us a strong foundation to be encouraged, to continue in our assurance that we have in fellowship with God, and, and, and put us on a trajectory to be able to walk continually in the light as we've been looking at. So before John moves on to his next train of thought next week, I thought it would be good just to remind ourselves of where we are and where we've come from when he brings together all these, these ideas today. So John is writing, he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, and they've had some trouble. There were some false teachers that were amongst them and were causing dissection and were probably and were leading some people astray. And he alludes to this in chapter 2, verse 26. John says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So clearly people were being led astray by some false teaching. And as a result, they had left the church. Because in chapter 2, John also says in verse 19, they went out from us. That is, those who had believed the false teachers had been led astray and they had left the church. And so John is now writing to those who remain, to those who are left behind, and they were definitely troubled in some way. Hence, we have this letter as to what had happened and what was still happening. And they were probably feeling a little bit insecure about their spiritual status and their standing before God. They may have been asking themselves, like, well, those who've left, were they right? Or am I wrong? And, and what does that mean for me and my standing with God? So John writes, he writes this letter as to Christians pastorally and polemically. So pastorally, he's concerned for their well-being, which is a good thing. And he wants to assure them of their salvation and that they have right standing with God, that they can know that they are in fellowship with God and that they are His. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks, that we can know that we, are, we have this assurance that we are with God. And he also writes polemically, and that means that he's, he's also making an argument or a defense of or a case for. And he, and he centers this around the person of Jesus. And as he opens the letter, he begins to unpack about that Jesus, who is the cornerstone, the foundation of our salvation. That our forgiveness of sins uh, come through Jesus and that we are brought into fellowship. That we are brought into relationship with God. And this theme that we come out of darkness into light is all rooted in Jesus, God who's come in the flesh and purchases for us our salvation. And he's writing polemically against this false teaching about Jesus. And also these beliefs that, that they weren't that sinful and that they, that, well, they weren't sinful in nature and they, their actions weren't sinful and it didn't break fellowship with God. And if you remember in verse 8 of chapter 1 is, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that they were saying you could walk in the light with Jesus regardless of your moral and ethical behavior. And they did not require from you any obedience to God's commands or love. And that's what we discovered last week. Is How do we know that we are His? How do we know that we are God's? That we are growing in, in there's this progression of growth in us in obedience to God and His commands. And there's this growing fervent devotion in love for God that works itself in love for our neighbors obedience and love. That's how we know. So John writes pastorally to give assurance 
that you are and they are and we are in fellowship and in union with God. And then he writes polemically to establish them in truth so that they wouldn't be deceived by false teaching and deception. And then today he brings in that they also wouldn't be deceived by temptation and fall away into sin. So let's take a look at today's passage, this summary of this opening part of the letter that John brings together some important foundational truths that will enable us to grow in our assurance and to continue in the faith, not being deceived or led astray by deception or sin. Hey y'all, we're the Pashes and we'll be reading 1 John 2 verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the word of God lives forever. So as we looked at that passage, as it's been read for us, the, the question is, is what do we do now? What do we need to know? John says six times in these first three verses, I write to you. Now, clearly, John has something he wants us to know. And particularly in this context, as we have unpacked into this troubled church, what is it that we need to know in order to stand firm and not be deceived or tempted into sin? And John is essentially saying the big idea or the secret here is this. What do we need to know? Your status and benefits as a Christ follower who is in fellowship with Jesus. You need to come to grips with and know your status and the benefits that have accrued to you as a Christ follower who's in fellowship with God. And that's what he does in verses 12 through 14. He establishes for us, he reminds us and he brings together these the status that we have and the benefits that accrue for us. So let's look at what those are in verses 12 to 14. But, but firstly, just a very quick aside. You will note that this the grammar of these first few verses is, is, is written in a different style to the rest of the letter. And there is some debate and confusion about when John says, Dear children, young men and fathers... Uh, is he referring to a specific group of people or is it metaphorical? But I want to put that to the side for us because the focus, I think, of what John's purpose and point here is the content of what he writes. This is what I want you to know. This is why I write to you, so that you can stand firm in the Scriptures. And those truths that he unpacks for us here are applicable to all Christians, no matter where you may find yourself on the spiritual maturity and growth journey. So what is the first thing that he wants us to know? The first thing in verse 12 is that your sins have been forgiven. It's an interesting statement that, see, John is reminding us and he's calling us back to the fundamentals, the very basic essence of the gospel message. Now, if we think about this now, 
think of our current time. We live in an age where many are attempting to find the essence or the core message of the gospel and of Christianity elsewhere with different focuses or emphases or progressive ideas or nuances. And many at the moment are being caught up in these historical, cultural, pertinent issues that are pervasive in the world today, and they're important issues. But in this desire, in caught up in them, there is resulting in a very small and growing revision of the gospel. And that ultimately leads to deception, and that ultimately leads to people being led astray, as it was in John's time. So if we take our eye off the ball, so to speak, deception will creep in. And people will be led astray when the gospel is subverted. So John starts, he says, fundamentally, how do we stand firm? How do we know our insurance? How do we grow in this gospel? We must understand the very essence of it and be reminded again. And he reminds us clearly today of this. Our sins have been forgiven. Yes, we are are absolutely sinful. Yet, we are forgiven and have been made new. And this is the radical message that we've always had from the very beginning, that the early church went out with this message of preaching repentance and forgiveness. And this is the message that has changed the world. This is the message that changed people, families, cities, cultures, communities, and ultimately radically transformed the known world of its time. The simple message, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Luke, in his gospel, right at the end of his gospel, this is what he says in chapter 24, 47. This is what's going to happen. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. So it's in Jesus, the God-man who's come in the flesh, in his work and in his name, it will be preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul, on his first missionary journey, in his foundational sermon in Antioch, what does he say? Acts thirteen thirty-eight. Therefore, dear brothers, I want you to know, same as John, I write to you, I want you to know. And what is that? Through Jesus, there it is, his polemic. It's in Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And it's this wonderful, radical truth of assurance that we who were enemies of God have now been forgiven. And we are now brought into and live at peace with God and we can stand with absolute confidence in the grace of God. And on this truth, you can begin to grow and stand confidently and firmly. See, as you go through life, as you go through every day, wherever you're working, whatever you're doing, this fundamental gospel truth needs to permeate all of you. And you can phrase it like this, your life depends on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your life depends on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your dignity, your value, your worth, your esteem, what you do, what the world says, what happens to you. No, your life depends on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's what we saw last week. If you remember, is that there is this atoning sacrifice that comes to us in Jesus, that He is our perfect substitute that goes in our place for our sins, that He is our advocate that is interceding for us on our behalf. And this is the solid rock that you can stand and build your life. It's in the name, it's in the person, and it's in the work of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, that who has died for you, that you might be forgiven. 
And when he says that you have forgiveness of sins, he writes forgiveness in the present tense. And this is a wonderful meaning, is that present tense means it's a fully completed action. No more to do. It is done that has an ongoing effect and result. So that is Jesus' work in his death and resurrection is fully complete. And it has fully purchased for you forgiveness of sins. And that we can now continue to live with the assurance in the blessings and the pleasures and the joys of his mercy and his grace. This act of Jesus becomes the assurance that you have that you are in right standing with God. This act of Jesus becomes the transformative power that changes the world through people who are now growing in living in obedience and love. And John wants us to know foundationally the very essence of the gospel truth in which everything is birthed. Know your status. That you are forgiven because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now you are brought into a perfect fellowship with him. The second thing he wants us to know uh, in verses 13 through 14 is this simple statement that you know him. Uh, Three times he says you have known him, the one who is from the beginning. There's this emphasis on that you've known him, you know God, you know Jesus. And when we unpack this, this truly is a great gift and a blessing that accrues to you as a Christian. And it's particularly important in this direct context because he wants to assure his audience that they do have fellowship with God, that you can know God, and that you can continue to live an intimate relationship with God because you know him. That he wants to give them assurance that you're no longer in the dark, but now you're living in the light because you know God and that they can continue to grow in knowledge of him. Now, when you think of relationship, um, when you get to know someone or something uh, intimately and deeply, what happens? There is a, a faith that gets established. Like the, you build faith in this person. And when faith gets established, it leads to trust. That I can trust this person because I have a faith in them and I've got to know them and see them. And I can now trust them. And when trust goes, what happens is it leads that you can now find rest. There's peace that I don't have to worry. I can. I, there's a peace that begins to birth in the relationship. And when you have a peace, there's a freedom that results in a joy that you can now begin to enjoy the benefits of this relationship that has been established with faith and trust and peace that leads to joy. And when you have a joy, there is an increasing hope of a future of good benefit that's flowing out of this. And when you have a hope, what happens is there is a security. And there's an assurance that begins to grow around this relationship. And he's saying in, in, in the context that this is how it works with God. And that's when you grow in your knowledge of him, this, this begins to grow in you. And then you can stand firm against any deception or temptation to sin. You see, what he's saying is when you taste and see who God is, you will begin to easily see deception and lies. When you realize the sweet taste of God's grace and his magnificent beauty and the fullness that is given to you, you will discover that it's far more satisfying than any hollow temporal temptation to sin. That you might know him and experience him in all his fullness. See, the word he uses here for, for knowing him or knowledge is, is not understood as uh, intellectual knowledge of becoming smarter. 
Um, it's a word that is used in, in Jewish or in, in the Hebrew. It's, it's a word that is used of intimate relationship that exists between a husband and wife who in time, through sexual intercourse, have come to know each other deeply and experientially. And that's the emphasis of this word knowledge, is that, that you have been brought into intimate fellowship, an intimate deep relationship, fully and completely into the, the fullness of who God is. And all that he has, the fullness of the heavenly realm, the fullness of the blessings of God, the gifts of God, the goodness of God, the fullness of the very essence of God is now yours to be lived in and experienced. That you can know and that you can live. It's wonderful. In the fullness of God's perfect love. And when you're living in a perfect love, a perfect love of forgiveness and a perfect love of acceptance, and it becomes this liberating power in your life that is truly transforming and leads to assurance as well. That you are brought into this knowledge of God. This intimate fellowship and relationship. And this is a powerful thing that he wants us to grasp and that we should explore deeply in our lives. That we should be growing in our knowledge, our intimacy, and our experience and our fellowship with God. You see, this is how it works in reality. When, when you have doubts, when you have insecurities, when they begin to creep into your life and you're insecure about yourself and who you are, they manifest themselves in sinful behavior. But he says, if you have knowledge of God, you can stand firm against these lies or these experiences that have created insecurity in you. He says that when you know God, you know the perfect love of God. You know the full acceptance of God, that God has chosen you. God has called you. God has saved you. God has lavished his love and his grace upon you. God has given you far greater dignity, worth and value and identity and purpose than any created person or thing in this world can ever do. And when you begin to know God, when you live in the fullness of His perfect love and His acceptance of you, it begins to dissipate your identity in terms of your insecurity and the worries and the concerns that you have and the doubts that you have that, no, I'm fully loved, I'm fully accepted. And it liberates you to go live in the light, in fellowship with God. Maybe if your hope is fading... And your fear is growing. For many I hear and I experience and I engage with in, in, in South Africa today. There is a dissipating hope in the future or a fear as to what's going to happen. And this can manifest itself in sinful attitudes towards systems and people and movements and governments. And all sorts of different things can come and it's destructive. As this seed of sin is birthed in us that's coming through fear and lack of hope. And what he says is, is that when you know God... When you're living fully in the presence and the fullness of God, what do you know about God? What do you experience about God? You are living in the assurance of God's goodness. You're living in the assurance of God's care. You're living in the assurance of God's love for you, that He will provide for you, that He has a future for you, and that your hope and your future is rooted in the love of God, the goodness of God, and the care of God. And you've come to know that because you're living in the fullness of God in fellowship with Him. It might be you are burdened. It might be that you are overwhelmed. Like the scenario of your life at the moment and the circumstances of the ongoing lockdown are having devastating effects. But what he says is so what happens is we escape our reality into sinful behaviors in order to cope or to ease our souls. We have these coping, me coping mechanisms. And what he says is here is that when you know God, you don't need to run off into escapism to soothe and ease your soul. He says that when you are living in the joy of God, 
when you are living in understanding and discovering the fullness of God, that He has called you into a fullness of life to which nothing can compare. And that in this friendship with God and the fullness of God being imparted to you on a daily basis, it liberates you from your need to engage with enslaving habits because God has called you into a freedom and into a life, into a fullness that we don't need to run away from, but that we can press into. You see, this is an amazing truth that we can know God. It's a wonderful gift that accrues to the Christian this knowledge of God, this fellowship that we can have with Him, this friendship with the eternal God, the one who's from the beginning. See, it's only in God that the deepest longings and desires of our hearts can be truly met. That once you are in relationship with Him, you get to daily, in increasing measure, be continually satisfied. And that's good news. That we need to taste this daily. We need to experience this. We need to embrace this. And we need to plumb the depths of the fullness of God that we might know Him. You see, no longer do we have to look elsewhere. We have the forgiveness of sins. And that brings us into an intimate fellowship and relationship with God, living in His perfect love. And on this you can stand. On this we can stand in this wonderful status and these benefits that accrue to us. The third thing that he wants to bring to our attention is in verse 13 and 14. It's a victorious strength. Um, twice he uses this phrase that because you have overcome the evil one. He wants to remind us of a victorious strength that has been accrued to us that we have in Jesus. You see, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he completely de defeats Satan, sin, and death. That he has disarmed him of all his eternal consequential powers. That Jesus' victory is our victory in salvation. So that you and I can now live in victory like Jesus did over Satan and all his lies and deceptions and seductions and temptations to sin. We have a victorious power that is at work in us that has come through Jesus. And that is exceedingly good news. I don't have to explain or, or probably tell you how deeply personal the spiritual battle is and our experiences of that. And John knows this. He, 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 the way he writes this is not some abstract force. This is he says, the evil one, he writes it in a way, is very clear, that it's Satan himself, that there is an enemy and there is an opposition who is at work to deceive and to lure you away and to tempt. And we all experience this, and we know this, and we feel this, and it comes to us in various forms. The assaults on our identity, or our virtue, or our dignity, or questioning of our loyalty and our standing with God that casts doubt to us. And whatever the form might be, we all experience this, and it's deeply personal it's seductive and it's destructive and it does come and we experience it. But the good news is that in Christ we have a power to meet and to defeat every deception and temptation that comes our way. So that when you walk in fellowship with Jesus, in friendship, knowing Him, growing in intimacy and experiencing all of His benefits that accrue to you, that you are walking with the one who enables us, who enables you to defeat every attack, lie, deception, and temptation that might come your way. 
And we need to know this powerful truth that you are not hopeless, helpless, or defenseless. We have the full authority of the power of God at our disposal that we might live in victory and it manifests itself in obedience and love. A power to say yes to God's commands and a power that moves us to love God and love the world and love our neighbor. We have this wonderful power at our disposal that is at work within us that we might live in the freedom of God's care and the freedom of God's direction that leads us into life. And this is good news. We have a victorious strength. So to summarize, what do we need to know? What is it that John wants to stress for us that we might stand firm against deception and temptation and, and grow in our assurance? Well, he simply says this. Our best defense to continue to walk in the light and overcome all these deceptions and temptations is that you must know your status and the benefits that you have as a Christ follower in fellowship with God. You must know your status and the benefits that you as a Christ follower have who's in relationship with God. That is who you are, what has been done for you. And this is the life-giving, assuring truth that you need to know. No matter who you are, in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. No matter who you are, in Christ, you may know Him who is from the beginning. No matter who you are, in Christ, you have the strength to face and overcome the evil one. William Barclay summarizes it like this. He says, The man who is forgiven, who knows God, and who is aware that he can draw on a strength that is beyond his own, has a great defense against temptation in simply remembering these things. Remember, John wants us to write these things to you, that you would know your status and the benefits that accrue to you in Jesus Christ. And this becomes your defense. This becomes your growth against error and temptation. And it flourishes with an assurance and a joy that results in love and obedience to God. And the resultant effect is when you know this, you will continue to walk in the light in fellowship with God. And that's what John has been seeking to do all along. He's writing post-storily and in his polemical articulation is to help us know these things, to be rooted and founded in them, that we wouldn't be deceived by the things of the world. And this is in the forefront of his mind because now all of a sudden he abruptly turns his attention and in verse 15 he makes this command, do not love the world. The reason he changes tack immediately is he's, he's stating negatively what we've been looking at positively. He, he's been saying is, look, this is who you are. This is your status. These are the benefits. Once you established yourself in this, you live in accordance and live out the reality of what this is. And that manifests itself, as we learned last week, in obedience and love for God. And he contrasts that if we don't, we end up living in obedience and love for the world. And that's why he starts a new train of thought. He says, do not love the world. How do we resist the temptations and the deceptions of the world? Know your status. Know the, your benefits. And that results in an increasing love and obedience for God in contrast to an increasing love and obedience to the world. So let's just clarify quickly what he means by the world. 
um, that do not love the world. It's not a rejection of the world and the creation because God was the creator of the world. And we know in John 3.16, it says God so loved the world. So God loves the world. God loves the people of the world. And the, the, he wants us to enjoy all of his creation. It was made by him and for him to point us to him as he reveals himself in all his glory through his creation. So it, it's good in a sense. The physical creation is there and it's good. What John means by this word cosmos, world, there's a nuance to it. There's a moral element to it. What John is saying is that we should not love and if you look at verses 16 17 he says we should not love or have a craving for or a lusting of or a boasting in a sinful world system that has beliefs values attitudes and actions that are opposed to god and also independent of god that have taken root through the destructiveness of sin do not love the world do not love these cravings these desires and these boastings what he's saying in another way is that these are good, honoring, God-honoring desires that have been given to us and were meant to be for God and to God that have been corrupted by sin. And they've become selfish, self-centered, lustful cravings that tear you away from God. He says, do not love this world. And how do we do that? We need to stand firm in our status and appropriate the benefits that have come to us. And if we don't, what he says is if you, if you don't obey and love and grow in this for God, ultimately you're placing your faith in things that do not last. Look at verse 16 and 17. For everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. So the person who attaches himself and roots himself in the world's aims and the world's ways and its values and its systems and its beliefs is giving themselves to something literally that has no future. It's all a deception and it eventually all fades away with no permanence. And John pointedly commands us here, having laid down the foundations, he says, do not love the world, reject these deceptions, reject these temptations. And how? He says, remember. Remember what has happened to you. Your sins have been forgiven. No longer do you have to live corrupted and deceived by the ways of the world. You've been liberated into a newfound freedom and a new life through the forgiveness of sins. He says, no longer do you have to be lost in despair, that you have a knowledge, that you have a fellowship, that you have an intimacy with God. You have direct access into the fullness of all of his love that permanently satisfies your heart and it far exceeds as he lists here any human craving desire lusting or boasting he says remember that you have a victorious strength to say no to the world and yes to god and grow in living in obedience and love for him and his people doing his will and continuing forever in fellowship with him And he ends here in verse 17 with this wonderful assurance. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. What will keep us there? What will keep us in the will of God for all eternity? What will continue to see us grow in love and obedience and in fellowship with God and growing assurance is that we remember our status and the benefits that we have as Christ followers in fellowship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you.
for this wonderful truth this morning. And yet you'd remind us that we, as we get caught up in the, the woes and the worries of life and the world, and the doubts and the fears and the insecurities, and all these things that press in on us, the deceptions and the temptations, that we might stand firm in this wonderful truth this morning. That you know us, that you've called us, that you've saved us. And in that we have the forgiveness of sins, a liberating new life, free from the destructiveness of sin, to be lived in knowledge of you, in fellowship and unity and fullness with you, that we might have the lavish love and the grace and mercy and the fullness of all that you are at our disposal for us. And that we have a victorious power, that we are not hopeless, defenseless, that we have the victorious power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us, that we've defeated sin and Satan and death, and that we might say no to the things of this world and yes to the eternal pleasures of God. And we get to live now with new power and with new joy and with new hope forever and ever. And Holy Spirit, would you gift us this truth? Would you impart it to us? Would you give us an assurance of faith? Would you encourage us and strengthen us with a newfound power? And would you enlighten us to the fullness of who you are, the depths of your love and your grace and your mercy that are ours in you.